When you're willing to venture off the beaten path, you can find the most incredible places in New York City. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we'll uncover some of the city's quirkiest spots with the authors of a new book called Hidden New York, A Guide to Places That Matter. Steve Zeitlin and Marcy Reven are with the preservation group City Lore. Thanks to both of you for coming in. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you you're for welcome. having us. This is really a fantastic book. It really inspired me to visit places in the city that, quite honestly, I never even knew existed. How did you uncover all of these places? We started City Lore back in 1986, and I think everything we've ever done somehow was leading towards this book. So we, we've been talking to people and networking and discovering places over many years. So this is the, the fruits of lots of labors and actually the efforts of many people who contributed to it. Also, we run a project called Place Matters, one of City Lore's uh, initiatives that began in the late 90s. It's a partnership with the Municipal Arts Society. And one of our goals has been to do just what you described to discover these kinds of places around the city and figure out how they connect people to the past and how they host uh, really important community and cultural traditions. And also how to keep them going and how to keep New York distinctive and vital at the same time as we celebrate what's here, trying to make sure what's here stays. The book opens with a visit to a park on the Lower East Side where something quite fascinating happens every day. Chinese men gather there with birds in bamboo cages. Incredible. There are two things that are incredible about it. One is that this is a tradition which comes from a very distant past in China, and that's been transformed into a New York City landscape and changed, we're sure, but still maintained in its essence. So that's one incredible thing. The other incredible thing is that some very smart people on the Lower East Side decided to build, they could actually build a garden that would host this, not just leave these men on their own to kind of struggle against all of the other competing uses of the park, but to create a place that would welcome these men and their birds and the people who come to watch them and the mothers and children who stroll by and the babies laugh with the birds. So it's a combination of an ongoing cultural tradition and a form of community activism that sustained that tradition. And those continue to work together. Steve, explain the history of this tradition. It's the Wame Bird Gardens, and these are these are this is a tradition of raising these these very or, uh, elaborate, uh, high maintenance birds. <laughs> it's a, basically a hobby for for Chinese men, uh, and they've brought that to their landscape on the Lower East Side. And the idea of it, which is which is kind of wonderful, is that the they bring one female bird, and all the male birds sing to try to get the attention of the female and they all compete to see who, who can who can sing the most beautiful song. So there's this kind of <laughs> this very ancient tradition from China and and these birds uh, all these men male birds singing to try to attract the attention of the female and being judged by their song. What's the sound like? It is a, a very sweet bird song that's kind of wafting over the traffic and the and the <laughs> jumble of the lower east side. So uh, it is a very much a music of the city. You know, you should record it, play it in some of your, some of your folk music shows, actually. <laughs> <laughs> is there a concern that this tradition will not keep up from generation to generation? The men themselves, the Huame Bird Club, it's actually a club, are conscious of that. 
the club is uh, composed of more older men than younger men. But there are younger men like Tommy Chan, for example, who comes in here from Long Island uh, almost daily, at least when the weather is decent, to uh, spend time with the club. I think he's very consciously trying to expand outwards and get the children of the men involved or other people. And really, you know, we can't make sure that the tradition continues, but we can make sure that if it continues, there's a place for it. There's a place for it to continue, and that's what Place Matters is about, trying to make sure there are there are forums and venues for people to express their cultural backgrounds and traditions. Our producer, Jody Abregan, visited another place in your book, and that is the Russian and Turkish baths in the East Village, and he had an amazing experience. He even had a plaza beating, which I can't wait to hear. <laughs> what is this place like? Well, it's... It really is indescribable. I think you really do have to go see it. If you've been to a spa recently and kind of think of pink tile and inordinately hygienic conditions, that's not what you're going to experience on East 10th Street. But you will experience kind of going back in time and seeing a whole cast of characters in a much more intimate setting than you normally would see them on the subway or the street. (laughs) I'm Valerie Tuberman. And uh, I am from Russia, and I am owner Russian and Turkish bus. It's a very famous place because it's very old place, very unusual place. This is place like 105 years old, and uh, we keep like uh, Russian tradition. We have specially room, and this room it's like uh, 15 tons of huge racks. Each racks it's like 500, you know. That's why it's like a big grill. All night we heat this and that's why in during daytime give you very pleasure hot temperature. And also your body tell it's enough, you put icy water on your body. Brian Mahoney from uh, yeah, and Lenny Lenny uh, Lenny yeah, from uh, Queens. Just you know, come here to get the steam. Get the, I play a lot of ball. I'm sore uh, after I play ball. I come here and uh, drink a ton of water and go downstairs and just sweat. And all that crap just comes out of you. And you come take a shower. You walk out of here feel like a million dollars. Place is great. It's been here forever. I've been coming here for like 15 years. My name's uh, Christopher. I'm from uh, originally from Santa Cruz, California, and I live up in Harlem now, in New York. Here, I basically I just come down. I haven't been into actually any of these other, you know, the wooden sun or anything. I just go straight to the main, the main room there, the traditional style, and I just usually do three or four of those. First, come in, take a nice cool shower, and do about three, four, even five, and then go up, lay out on the top deck, cool down, come back down, do a few more. It's real cleansing to the body, and it, you just feel real nice when you leave. You have a nice appetite, ready to go eat some good food. I haven't done any of the massages or any of that yet, but I'm, I'm interested, especially in the leaf massage. So um, I'm going to try them one of these days, though. It's, it's called a plaza, oak leaves massage. You go to Russian room. It's very high temperature, and guy, especially strong guy, beat you with these brooms. Very, very unusual. 
this is the aloe oil soap you see the soap it's very good for the body and I'm gonna put a water in my pocket see this is the fresh leaves the oak leaves there's only leaves nothing else I'm using the soap because of when you go to the Russian room and you can't burn yourself if you go without the soap, you can burn yourself with the heat. And the soap make your skin smooth and soft. It's very good for the body. And now we're ready for the plaza. First I'm gonna wash the people and then I beat you with the leaves. Please. The people after this look a little crazy, but after 10 minutes they feel amazing. And everybody say, Alex, you're a doctor, you have a magic hands. I make the people feel good. I love doing plots. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. We're joined this morning by Marcy Reven and Steve Zeitlin. They're the authors of a book called Hidden New York, A Guide to Places That Matter. Anyone interested in magic would be thrilled to learn about the regular gathering of magicians at the Edison Hotel. How did these meetings get started? They go back a long, long way too, right? Yeah. There used to be many, many places of magic in the Times Square area. So magicians and magic had a regular and frequent place in the Times Square area, both, I think, in terms of uh, broadcast, but also in terms of live performance. And so these magicians had strange hours. You know, they would perform at night, they would perform at weekends, and they often had midday free and they love to have the company of each other. Because if you're a magician, there's a certain part of your life which is spent in secret. There's only so many people you can speak to about, the, about your tradecraft. And so there's kind of a natural tendency to come together with your own to talk about your magic. And so that's how it started. They were, all, they were there. They had the opportunity. They had the desire. And every lunch for 50 years, they spent together. And, you know, they're at the Edison Hotel in the coffee shop, and um, anybody can go there and talk to them and, they, you know, and watch some of their tricks and get into that conversation. So it's it's kind of a wonderful example of, you know, it's a secret New York in a way, but it's also a magical New York. There's one trick in the book that you talk about with a salt shaker. If you're going to ask me how it works, I, I, A, I, I wouldn't tell you if I could or I have to kill you, right? <laughs> and second of all, I don't know how it works. That's one of the tricks where, where suddenly all the magicians uh, have salt uh, coming out of their sleeves or whatever on, onto the table. It's one of their wonderful tricks. I love the way that, that article ends. It says, there's one trick they haven't mastered yet at that coffee shop, which is how to make the check disappear. <laughs> the sale of Coney Island's Astroland to developer Thor Equities recently made headlines, and you include Coney Island in your book. Are you concerned that Coney Island will lose its gritty character and turn into something more corporate? Yes, we are. And we, we've worked a long time with the folks out at Coney Island. Uh, I know that Coney Island USA is trying to buy a building at the moment, which is fantastic, which is the one thing they need is a permanent uh, space for the traditional Coney Island sideshow. And um, we are very concerned about it. We do do a lot of work advocating for it. There's a 
project going on now to try to landmark key sites in Coney Island. We've been involved in that uh, to the degree that we can be as well. So we're always concerned about it. But places in New York are resilient as well. And Coney Island has survived a lot. And it will probably survive this too. You know, a lot of people didn't were, were uncomfortable with the stadium being there, but the stadium has turned into a, a really great thing for reviving Coney Island. So, And the key thing about it is to try to get, you know, waterfront-related places and amusement-related places so that the memories of Coney Island can build instead of turning them into condominiums, which, which erase that history. And we're fighting to be able to do that. I think one thing, too, to underscore what Steve was saying is that this process of unique unique New York disappearing in the face of a corporatized New York is happening all over the city. And aside from all of the very real, specific acts of advocacy that people can do, I think one thing that we tried to stress in, in the book is just to pay attention to the places that do matter in those neighborhoods and not to lose sight of them. Sometimes in the Lower East Side, for example, you see huge buildings going up every day and small mom-and-pop type stores making way for a very different kind of scene. And it's hard to remember that there's still quite a bit of interesting Lower East Side left of a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-economic area. And it's to not lose sight of those places and continue to advocate for them and pay attention to them and support them that we believe strongly in. One place that has stood the test of time is Webster Hall in the East Village. And many of us have been there. I've been there. I've danced there. But I did not know about the rich history of Webster Hall and the fact that going back to the 1920s, this place hosted gay and lesbian drag balls in the 1920s. (laughs) New York is an amazing place. (laughs) People have been very cutting edge for a very long time. (laughs) And it's the other thing that we advocate for all the time is actually telling the stories. So the place, it's wonderful that the places survive and that the traditions are sustained. But if people don't know the stories, then the richness of the cities is only accessible to those who are able to do an enormous amount of work reading and telling. So we think that there should be place markers throughout the city explaining these rich histories. There should be books. There should be movies. There should be radio shows. It's Places are incredible teaching tools about the past. And that's what we try to accomplish in the book, is to use each single place as a, a kind of window onto a whole world that you otherwise wouldn't see. It's interesting how New Yorkers have gathered at Union Square throughout history so often. And we saw that again after 9-11, how people congregated there at Union Square to help, you know, get over the disaster. Union Square is so interesting that way because it almost seems like it's like, it's it's history. It's, like, it's almost like even the people, even kids, I mean, you see nothing but kids there. They don't know the history of Union Square, but that's where they go. And it's almost as if the history somehow is bubbling underneath and they just know that it's there and that's where they have to go to have a, a protest that really is is 24-7 happening in that square at all times. After 9-11, Union Square was interesting because the, the, you know there were so many memorials there, but it was always a protest site too. So there was both a memorial and a peace site. And uh, the authorities left the memorials in most other parts of the city, but they were always cleaning up Union Square because they knew that it was always about to break into, you know, another form of protest. There's just a sense that people people understand that that history, 
um, you know, going back to the famous union movements that met there in the early part of the 20th century. So, And good design matters, too, good urban design. So when I moved to the city in the 70s, Union Square, for all kinds of reasons, was much less of a gathering space than it is now. It was a gathering space for drug sales, but not so much for um, wonderful nights out or the green market. So the green market made a huge difference when the farmer's market when it came in in the 1970s. And the good urban design that was practiced there of opening up the square so that people could sit and gather in those fantastic steps that front on 14th Street. I live in that neighborhood, so I see it relatively often. And those steps were barely dry before people started to sit on them. So it makes a huge difference. It's interesting what's happening on the north side of the park. There's been a big battle now about whether the north side of the park will be privatized uh, with construction of a restaurant. And that's an issue, I think an important public space issue in New York about how much of the public parks are being eaten up by fancy restaurants and other kinds of private facilities. One fellow named Jack Taylor and a number of other local people have been leading a big campaign to make sure that that northern side stays open for these very kinds of protests uh, because Everybody tends to go to Union Square, so if you block it off and make it too pretty, the chances are that it won't be available for use to social, political, cultural gatherings in the future. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. We're joined this morning by the authors of Hidden New York, A Guide to Places That Matter, Marcy Reven and Steve Zeitlin. New Yorkers work hard, as we know, but they also play hard. And you have a chapter in your book called City Play where you talk about Stickball Boulevard in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And people really take stickball quite seriously here in the Bronx. They, they do. In fact, we were up here. How far, is, 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 how far are we here from 189th Street? Not very far at all. Right. So that, was the, that, that is the, the, old, the Bronx old timers met in the uh, high school playground at 189th and Bathgate. And that's where we got to know people like the, the incredible John Stevens, who, who was one of the patrons of that stickball game. And, and just, you know, Played stickball as if as if their lives depended on it uh, for for so many years and and uh, you know we're we're actually you know at, at first they were so thrilled when the Spaldine was with, came back and then they decided that the, the new Spaldine wasn't as good as the old Spaldine so they actually used a different ball in those games and um, uh, he I, I always love the fact that he, he he would tell these stories about being a kid like when Mrs. Mrs. O, as a kid playing stickball, and there's a woman named, named Mrs. O'Reilly who used to bake pies. And according to him, in one great game, there was a home run hit, and the the Spaldine hit Mrs. O'Reilly's pie off the ledge, and it fell down, and somebody caught the pie, and and actually started running with the, with the pie, and Mrs. O, Mrs. O'Reilly came down and started running after them. 
I don't know if that was really true, but I've always loved him telling that story. And he was he was very much a part of that Bronx stickball league. Many of them are in their 80s and 90s still playing stickball. And we hope that the, that group will be perennially replenished as well. And a lot of those stickball players went on to make Latin music together. So they would meet on the stickball in the stickball game, and then they would go on and they would form bands and bring in other stickball players who were musically inclined. And a lot of the uh, Latin music greats of New York go back to uh, think about stickball as the place where it all started. There was even a social club on Southern Avenue in the Bronx, uh, the Tritons, which was formed out of a stickball league. So it, it kind of dominated many aspects of their life. Talking about Latin music, there's a music shop that you included in the book in the Bronx, the Casa Amadeo Record Shop. Tell us about that place. Well, Casa Amadeo is probably the, it was a pioneer. It was one of the first Latin music places that moved into the Bronx as more and more Puerto Ricans came, started moving to the Bronx, both from East Harlem and from the island itself. So um, Victoria Hernandez, who was a pioneer Latina entrepreneur in Latin music, whose brother Rafael Hernandez was a very famous uh, Puerto Rican composer, moved to the Bronx from East Harlem and started Casa Hernandez. Around Casa Hernandez, all kinds of new Latin music joints opened, you know, ranging from the smallest bar to the most elaborate club uh, the Havana, the Hunts Point Palace, these were places that people would come to from all over the city. So Casa Hernandez continued as the Bronx became really a mecca for Latin music. And then a young fellow named Mike Amadeo, who started working there and at other Latin music places, actually bought the place from the Hernandez family in the 60s, and he started Casa Amadeo. And continuing many of these same traditions of making it a treasure house of Latin music, not just because he has an incredible inventory, but also because he's so knowledgeable. So people come there both for the music and for his knowledge about the music. Right. And he's, he's a musician as himself and oftentimes sings in the shop as well. So. That's right. And really, it's the last surviving place of the South Bronx's grand era of a place of Latin music uh, in the from the 40s to the 70s. And of course, that's still continuing, but that was its heyday. What's the story behind the street of Little Doors in Brooklyn? It's on, on Dennett Place, and it is the street of Little Doors, and it does look like midgets live there. It just has to do with the architecture of that particular block. When, when you see, I mean, there is you, when somebody, when you see somebody get in and out of the of the, the miniature doors, you realize that when the door opens, they step down into the basement. So the door is not it, it, they it, even though it looks very little, you can you you're stepping down into the basement. So it it's not you don't have to be a midget to live there. You don't have to duck as much as you would think. But when you just see the doors, it looks like like a like a like a land of midgets. Are there any natural wonders in the city? that you think truly matter and should be maintained as best they can? The caves, the the Indian caves in Inwood Park. When you go to them, they're never quite as deep as you might imagine. In fact, they were, they were, I think the official term for them is Indian shelters because the Indians didn't live there all year round. They used it as a base for, for fishing and things like that. And it's not right on the... The, the landscape has changed, and the, the WPA construction actually made it made that those caves further away from the water than they were in the old days. But it's still amazing to go 
to Inwood Park, which is still such a beautiful natural spot, and to visit those Indian shelters. I want to talk about the Ice King of Corona because the owner here reminds me of the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. <laughs> well, that's Caitlin Van Dusen, the, uh, the wonderful young writer who wrote The uh, Lemon Ice King uh, and many other stories in the book. And, and I think she had a particularly ironic take on... <laughs> You know, but he's not he's 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 not the soup Nazi. He's the, the the lemon ice king, you know, with his with his cook's cap as his crown. What's his name yeah. again? Peter Benferramo. He uh, does not allow you to mix, mix. ices. <laughs> <laughs> he's been running that joint for a long time. He knows what works and this is what works. <laughs> Everybody has their standards. And one of the themes of the book is that a lot of these places have real characters behind them. And the effort to save places is really an effort to uh, encourage these local characters to continue holding on to something that, that may not really make them rich or famous, but their identity becomes tied up into that place. People invest their identity into places, and they keep those places rich as long as they care. And part of what we hope to do is encourage people to do that, that it's a worthwhile thing to do with their lives. That seems to be the case with the chess havens in New York City, in Manhattan in particular, in the village. Right. There's, I mean, the ch- those chess places are also sustained by a variety of characters, some of whom are the, you know, the hustlers who play in Washington Square Park year in and year out. Uh, uh, Sweet Pea and Jr. and, you know, they're just they're regular characters there. And some of them are in the Marshall chess club, like Asa Hoffman, who's the denizen of the Marsh, of, 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 uh, of Marshall's chess club. And, and um, you know, there are people who, who somehow get, have their lives invested in that game, just like the stickball players are invested in that game. And they keep those places very, very vital by uh, making them their haunts. There are a couple of places directly across the street from each other in the village, right? Right. The village chess shop uh, is is uh, one, and the Chess Forum is the other, and they face each other on Thompson Street. And and at least at, at the time of our book's writing, many people would not go from one to the other because of old grievances that they had with each other. So they they kind of faced off like the white and black team in chess. <laughs> Our producer Jody Abergan recently stopped by one of those shops, so we're going to hear some of that right now. My name is Larry Nash. We're at the Village Chess Shop, which has been here since 1972. Uh, opened uh, back then by my aunt and uncle, George and Ruth. Get up. I get up, but I want to. I said get I get up, but I want You want to get out? On a typical day, you'll see a bunch of chess players hanging out. We have a dozen tables, and we get people from, I would say, maybe 6 to maybe 86 there's people who don't speak English. There's people who have learned to speak English here. We'll have Wall Street brokers coming in here after work playing uh, ex-cons who are also coming in after their, whatever they're doing. Uh, and the, everyone meets. The, 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 the chess table itself is an equalizer. One of the differences between playing in a place like this and playing in a place like the Marshall Chess Club the Marshall um, is over on 10th Street. It's been there for, I would say, at least 100 years. Very serious play. And here, they take the game seriously, but they also like to have fun. It is a game. 
and uh, there's the psychological elements. And when you're playing a tournament, it's not considered appropriate to to, to start ragging on your on your opponent and, and, and calling them all kinds of names. But here they do, although we keep it in, in perspective. Actually, on the board, we have a, a $3 charge per profanity, which usually quiets down the uh, arguments. The man's a scared little man. The idea of this game is uh, to win. Uh, not only win, because uh, uh, at his age, uh, he's getting senile, and that keeps him from uh, getting senile. Do I look senile? He doesn't look senile because he's but playing the royal game. Absolutely, the gentleman is in good shape. Are we not playing a clock, are we? No. No clock is you. Are you serious? You won't find anywhere in New York a collection of individuals like you'll find here. This is old New York, and over the years, there have been some amazing people who have come in. You have people that this is their family. We're open, we're open on holidays because there's, there's people who don't have families. This is, their, this is where they come on Christmas Day. They'll be here, and we'll be here. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. We've been talking to the authors of a book called Hidden New York, A Guide to Places That Matter. The chess havens in Manhattan's Greenwich Village are among those places. Marcy Reven and Steve Zeitlin, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Remember, Cityscape is available for podcast at WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Have a great weekend.